Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 11 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the opportunity to speak with Davide Trevelli, an Italian that decided to drop everything and cycle from Alaska to Patagonia. Throughout this process and this adventure, he decided he wanted to see more and to extend his trip into a world trip. Today, he's going to share with you about his equipment, what he carries and where on his bike. He's going to share some of the disastrous stories about what happened to him in various places throughout the world so far. And he's going to share with you some of his most favorite places to cycle and why they're so good. We also talk about his finances and how he manages to to travel on such a low budget and how he manages to make money as he goes along on this adventure. If you're interested in following Davide, you can find him either at his website, www.alaskatopatagonia.com, or by searching his name on Instagram and Facebook at Davide Trevelli. Davide, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for uh, having me here. And uh, hello to everybody that is listening. Can you tell us about yourself? Uh, I don't like to talk about myself, but uh, I'm uh, Davide Travelli. I'm uh, I'm Italian. I was born in Italy about 40 years ago, so that makes me an old person. <laughs> and uh, about uh, five, uh, four years ago, I started uh, bike traveling, and uh, I've been on the road almost four years. Uh, I crossed about 30 countries. Uh, I crossed the ent- entire length of the Americas from Alaska to Patagonia. And then I crossed the entire length of uh, Africa from Cape Town to Cairo. And uh, now I'm currently in uh, in Turkey and uh, I will be cycling towards um, Europe and then, uh, and then all the other continents afterwards. And have you been a lifelong cyclist or is this something that came along later in life? I did loads of... Uh, uh, road racing and velodrome when I was uh, younger. Okay. And then I, when I was about 20, I stopped racing, my racing career, and I moved to Ireland. And uh, I haven't really touched the bike ever since, basically. And uh, I did some adventure races in Ireland here and there, but I, I didn't really use much the bike. And then, uh, and then one day I decided I... I really wanted to do a grand adventure and uh, I decided I wanted to to cycle the Pan American Highway which mm-hmm. is the longest world uh, the the longest road in the world and uh, and so I started from Alaska and then I quickly realized the Pan American Highway is pretty boring because it's a highway so I kind of make I kind of make the my own Pan American Highway and I cycled down to uh, Patagonia and I made like about 35,000 kilometers. And it took me two years and 10 months, I think. Oh, wow. And uh, and when I was in um, halfway through, I've been very unfortunate in uh, in North America where I spent more money than I, I thought I would. 
and I have several problems with grizzly bear, black bears. I had car accidents, and so I spend lots of money. And uh, and when I got to uh, to Colombia, yeah. I was like, I was always very frugal in my in my journey. But I thought maybe I don't know if my my savings are enough to to get to Patagonia. And uh, and so I thought, you know. Fuck it, let's uh, let's cross all the continents. And uh, to, to be honest, when I was in Colombia, I started to meet lots of uh, people from uh, South America that they travel uh, for many years uh, without money. So I said to myself, "Well, if they can do it, I can do it myself." And I was like, "I I need to double down and and don't just cross the Americas, but cross all the continents." Right. And that's that's uh, pretty much uh, what I'm doing at the moment. Okay, before you started bike touring, what did you do for a living? Uh, in my past life, I was a business consultant, oh, okay. uh, mostly marketing and uh, sales. And I was uh, I worked for some big companies, some big consulting companies from from US. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but for many years, I've been uh, uh, self-employed and uh, was mainly working with uh, small Italian companies and helping them to develop business with uh, Northern Europe. Was there one thing in particular that made you say, I, I want to do a world tour or first the, the Pan America road? There wasn't any anything traumatic. I, I met some people that they had some traumatic experience and they decided to travel for me. There wasn't anything in particular, but I, there was always this thirst of adventure that I always had since I was a, uh, a little kid and mm-hmm. I was uh, reading books of adventurers or even just uh, Jules Verne or, you know, things like that. And um, I always thought I would do a grand adventure and uh, and like a big travel and but I always postpone it when I'll have this much money, when my career will reach this level and right. when I'll have a house and when I'll have these, these and that in place. And it, it never happened. So at some point I realized, okay, I'm already 36 years old and I had a problem with my knee, a problem with my back. And I was like, if I don't do it now, I, I will never do it. And uh, also... My parents were uh, at the time were approaching the age of retiring, mm-hmm. and they always did a very intense physical job. And uh, and I could see that they always wanted to travel. When they always said, when uh, when we retire, we will we will do lots of traveling. We will we will buy an RV and travel. And uh, but physically, they were not in a position to do it because. They did a, always a very intense job, and yeah. and I was like, I don't want to be in that position. I want to do it now before it's too late. And uh, and also, I w- I always go to a, to the beach in Italy, and I usually bring uh, some books with me. I have some friends from Venezuela that they mm-hmm. have a big house on the beach, and I always go there for like a month or two in the summer. And usually, I grab some books that I have in my shelf in Italy because I always buy too much too many books that I cannot. And I, 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 this one year I, I brought uh, by chance books about people traveling by bike or uh, about the okay. bike, and it kind of sparkled again my passion for uh, for the bike, and uh, and I was like, you know what? And I was reading the book of uh, Robert uh, Lilwell, 
cycling cycling home from Siberia. Okay. And I was like uh, at the beginning of the book, maybe halfway through the book, and I was like, you know what? I could I could do the Pan American Highway by bike because I always thought I need to rent a car or yeah. I need to you know do it with a van or with a motorbike and I two years prior to that I had a half plan to do it with a friend uh, with a motorbike but then he pulled out because uh, he met a girl and this oh, and yeah. that and uh, and something clicked when I was reading these books and I was like you know what I should travel by bike it makes sense and uh, it's cheaper and uh, I can do it alone. I don't need to to put together uh, nobody. And, 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 I, and I said to this friend that uh, we, we had this plan. He's my Venezuelan friend that okay. has the house on the beach. And I was like, Dino, next year I'm going to go to, to Alaska and I'm going to cycle to Patagonia. He said, no, don't do it. The next year we do the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And if we like, then we will do the Pan American Highway the following year. And I was like, no, because you're always bullshit me. <laughs> and uh, then you'll pull out for, for some girl or some stuff with your uh, with your job. And so I was like, no, next next uh, summer I'll be in, in Alaska and I'll start cycling towards Patagonia. And that's what I did. And uh, he actually joined me for uh, two weeks. He came to uh, when I was in uh, in Nicaragua, okay, and uh, we did a couple of weeks together from uh, Managua, Nicaragua, to San Jose, Costa Rica. So, um, did you start from Italy, or were you in Ireland when you left, and you you actually you flew directly to Alaska to start? Yeah, I flew from Italy because my my family is in uh, in Italy, mm-hmm. but uh, I was basically the last uh, maybe ten years prior this uh, starting this journey. I was spending half of my time in Ireland and half of my time in Italy. So, but I left from Italy, so I, I put together all my gear in Italy and then uh, flew from, uh, from Italy to, to Alaska. I flew to Anchorage and from Anchorage to, to Prudhoe Bay, which is the, the start of the Dalton Highway. It's yeah. basically the enormous point uh, uh, where there is a road in, uh, in North America. And it's usually it's people start from there to cycle down to Patagonia. Yeah. How did you get to Prudhoe Bay? Did you... you... You took a bus, or uh, the, no? There's a there's a flight that goes from. Uh, it's like a bus because it's a flight that goes from Anchorage to Barrow to Prudhoe Bay and then back to Anchorage. Okay. So when you are in Barrow, some people leave the plane, some people get on the plane, and then right. it stops in Prudhoe Bay. Some people leave the plane, some other people can get in. It's really it feels more like a bus than a plane. Uh, but yeah, that's how I got there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, my friend, he, uh, well, he was previous guest as well. He, uh, he just managed to get a ride up to Prudhoe Bay from, uh, Denali National Park and then cycled back down. So he was quite fortunate that way. Yeah, I just, uh, for me, it was the first time of everything. Right. So I, maybe you, you can hitch if, yeah, I'm sure you can try to find some traffic that goes up but i it was my first time of everything so i just just bought a ticket there and uh, i never traveled by bike before that and i never pitched a tent in my life before i got to alaska so everything was very new and radical so (laughs) and what time of the year did you go up there it was a bit late because uh my visa because as European, you get 90 days uh, electronic visa. It's called ESTA visa program. Okay. 
but uh, I ended up applying for a proper visa for uh, US, so I, I could have a longer time. I could have six okay. months, yeah, and that kind of delayed everything because they, you have to have an interview, and obviously they have uh, a very long list of uh, appointments. And uh, so I started in um, the middle of August, which I wouldn't recommend anyone to do it because it was almost winter, and uh, you got snow and. And things like that, and I I wouldn't really recommend it. So you think people should start probably in like June, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, June. Uh, I, I was told uh, by people up there in uh, in the Arctic mm-hmm. Circle in Alaska that uh, the seasons are like this: June is spring, July summer, August is autumn, and all the other months is winter uh, <laughs> up there. So, so start in the spring so you so can get yeah, out of there as fast as you can, right? Yeah. <laughs> It would make sense to to start in Ju- uh, June or July. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're almost uh, almost four years now. You're you're just a few weeks away from hitting your four years. Yeah, on August fourteenth, it will be four years. Yes. Ah, congratulations. Cheers. And uh, you said that when you first started, you were going through well Canada, USA, and it cost you a lot of money, and you didn't know how long you'd be going for at that time, and you you might have. How did you feel that you overspent? Like, where were things that you should have cut out or been more careful? To be honest, I was uh, one of the the most frugal people that I uh, that I was around because, well, at the beginning I was alone. I only met a French girl after uh, a month and a half that I was on the road, okay. and I was uh, near Hope in um, in Canada. Yeah. And uh, but then when I got to California, I started to meet other people traveling, and uh, I realized I was really very frugal. Okay. And uh, as I said, I read the book of uh, Robert Lilwall, uh, and also the and also another uh, role model before this trip was um, Alastair Humphries. Yeah. That he wrote two books about his uh, around the world journey, and uh, as well he was very frugal, and um, so. That kind of set my standards. And um, for example, I reach out to a before starting the trip. I reach out to um, to several companies that make uh, replacement uh, food uh, products, okay. like Soylent. And the, so I got a I got a sponsorship deal with um, with an American company that was called uh, well, the product was called the One Hundred Percent Food. And they, they would send me like uh, these bags. It's like uh, three, four kilos bags of uh, these products. And I, and I, for weeks, I would only eat uh, that thing because oh, okay. it was, was free, you know. So I was always very frugal and I wasn't spending mu- much money. But I had problems with, uh, with bears. For example, uh, one, one black bear uh, destroyed my front panniers and trashed everything. Is that because you had and, food in the uh, panniers? There was food in yes. the pan area, and a thing that smelled. Uh, I would just put everything in the front panniers with food and uh, and anything that mm-hmm. had a smell or a scent, like toothpaste and things like that. And uh, then he walked. Uh, then when I replaced the pannier, another black bear uh, took one of the panniers away, and then uh, I got my tent damaged because one of one a black bear walked into it. And when I was getting into to Vancouver, a guy with one of these massive um, trucks, the F 
250, 350, yeah. I can't remember. But he reversed into me, so he kind of crashed uh, into my oh, bike. Shit. And then he said, oh, take a picture of my drive license and I will cover the cost. And there was a lady there and she said, oh, I saw everything. Uh, if you want my number, I'll be your witness. And I said, no, it's not necessary because this guy gave me his uh, drive license and everything. And he said he will cover the cost. And then when I was, uh, I called him a few days later, uh, you know, I was like, the quote is this much to, to fix everything. And he never answered the phone. Oh, and uh, I went to the police in Vancouver and they said, look, we have better things to deal with. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously I couldn't stay around for a month just to deal with this thing. And so, but it, yeah, it was little things like that, that, you know, you add up and, yeah. uh, and uh and it amounts to lots of money and also like in uh, in italy we don't really have like uh, the outdoor and camping uh, culture that there is in north america so there isn't much uh second-hand gear on the market so i had to buy everything new yeah all at once uh from clothing to 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 camping gear and uh bike uh, spare parts so everything i had to buy new and and four years ago there weren't as many companies making cheaper equipment that you could buy like the bike packing stuff you see so much of there's some of it's pretty inexpensive yeah affordable yeah, I mean, uh, nowadays I think there is a little bit more competition, but you know, and and then uh, when you're there, that you don't know what you need, what you don't need. Uh, I I did lots of research, but I was really overwhelmed because I wasn't really sure, and I never, and I did didn't have like the bike and the gear to do a test, uh, like uh, to do a trip a little bit, you know, like a week or something be- before just. Yeah. So at the end, I, I bought uh, what it was uh, maybe, oh, this is very reliable. It costs more, but, you know, okay, I'll buy this. Uh, so I kind of bought things that they were also a little bit pricey. Even right. the bike, I, I had a Surly. You know, it's all things like that. that uh, you, little things then add up to, to, to a big amount. Mm-hmm. Also, because of the visa, I had to delay purchasing the the flight ticket and okay. once i got the visa i bought the flight ticket and i was checking the flights and uh you know like until two days before i bought them it was about eight nine hundred euro and then i go the the day that i got the visa that i can buy it they went up to 1500 oh. 1600 euros so <laughs> it's uh yeah it was a bit crazy but uh, so I ended up spending lots of money immediately just before that. And then, as I said, I had uh, a little misfortune here and there. And, yeah. yeah. And, and luckily, it's, these unfortunate costs came right at the start of the tour when you could factor that into your future budget, where if you're in the middle of a tour and you have, you know, you're two years into something and you have all these things happen that could really cripple you. Like you'd be like, oh. Yeah, like and obviously at the beginning I I had no experience traveling. So like now I'm basically it's like uh, three years, uh, two two at least two years that I'm traveling uh, without money. So it, had it happened now, I wouldn't be worried because I know that uh, one way or another okay. um, I can. Do, I We're do gonna talk about that a little I bit do, later. Yeah, I have that plan to okay. talk about. So talking about bears. Based on your experience, what is um, the best way to handle when you're in bear country? What should people do? 
The problem, that, as I see it with the Bears, is uh, first of all, I had no experience. You you have to know that uh, <laughs> wilderness in uh, in Europe is uh, is not wild at all. We don't have any animals that that can kill you like a bear. We don't have moose. We don't have cougars. Right. And uh, you know, even even the, even the we don't have poisonous plants like you do. Like I remember at some point I had blister all over my, my, my legs and I was like, poison Oh my God, ivy? I'm going to die. I, yeah. It was, they told me it was oak ivy uh, or poison, poison oak or poison ivy. ivy. Yeah. We have poison oak. Yeah. And you know, like, wow, I can't even touch plants in, uh, in, <laughs> in this place. You know, everything, we don't have rattlesnakes, you know, we only have the viper, but, it's very rare to see a viper okay. and it's scared of people. So in Europe, wilderness is very, very gentle and mild. So you get to a place where you have to deal with, a, like I, I saw the, a grizzly like two hours into my trip. Oh, did you? you know, it's, it's, and I was face to face with a grizzly bear on the third day. So, I mean, this is really scary for me. And uh, yeah. What did you do? Uh, so, and... And how far was it away? Yeah, no, I, it, it came to the bike. So, and I was given like uh, uh, a spray horn yeah. in in Purdo Bay, and they were like three times with this, and it's a, it's an alarm, and people will come to help you if there is people around. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. And then I used the bear, the bear spray. Yeah, and uh, and obviously there was headwind, so it went into my face. <laughs> So, but I was really lucky because it was a it was a Sunday morning, and at some point, uh, like one of these big trucks for um, for the oil industry that is on the Dalton Highway came and uh, and basically rescued me. Otherwise, uh, it would have been uh, very difficult to come out unscattered from that situation. And like you see grizzly bears on TV, and mm-hmm. yeah, they're kind of cute and, and all. But when you have it. Like when you're face to face with, like they are really, really big. Like they're really scary, and they smell awful. Like do they? Yeah? They smell like garbage. Yeah. So you were you had the bear, the, the grizzly was right at your bike, and you were where were you? Yeah, I was next to my bike. Okay, you were next. To my bike. <laughs> yes, and uh, but at the end, uh, this this uh, truck came and used the horn, but the bear uh, didn't really care. So he went close to the bear again, didn't care. So he kind of touched the bear. So the bear uh, stepped back a, a few steps and uh, went down. There was a little uh, river, mm-hmm. went down on the river, and I go back on my bike and I start to pedal very quickly. And the, the truck positioned himself so that the bear couldn't come back on the road. And then when I was safe, maybe like uh, a kilometer down the road, the the truck resumed uh, his journey and and I thanked him and and everything. And then I was very close. There are some, uh, some, um, there is uh, an oil pipeline uh, pretty much parallel to the Alton Highway. And every like, I don't know, a hundred kilometers, there is pump station. And I was very close to one of those pump stations. That's why I use the, the spray horn. Okay. But the people couldn't couldn't hear me there, and uh, and when I got close to the station, I remember there was some uh, people of the Alaska Highway mm-hmm. with some vehicles. They were doing some wo- uh, road work, and uh, and this one guy came with this fancy pickup and he lowered the window and he said, and I, at that point I stopped and I was putting away the the bear spray. 
and everything. And, and I remember he he came and he said, uh, you shouldn't stop here. It's not safe. We have a bear. And I was like, no shit. Did you not hear my horn? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. So you're kind of lucky, I guess. Um, three days in, it could have been the end of the trip, but you made it. You survived. Yes, and um, um, and I got injured the for the I got injured the first day at my knee, so it was all terrible. Like and uh, and it was very gloomy. It was raining, a bit snowing, and I had a an injured knee, and I had these problems with the bears. And and I remember, like five minutes later, I was going up a hill, and it was really foggy. You couldn't see much, and uh, one one wolf crossed the street, and. Uh, and it's unusual to see to see one wolf because right. you're usually in a pack. But I saw the wolf and I was like, oh, my God, what did I get into myself? Like, I'm not used to this uh, wilderness. And uh, and I start crying and I was pedaling and crying. And the first month and a half, every day at some point, I was just uh, pedaling and crying because I was very lonely. Then I had hypothermia twice. Okay. I mean, it was really terrible. I think you should have, uh, you should have, you should have started and, but, the tour like all, all to most bike tourists and just gone to Southeast Asia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But coming back to your question, basically there's so many bears that I didn't know. And also when I was reading the, the, the guidelines of the, the Alaskan government right. and they say, you know, you have to put, uh, you, you have to hang your food, uh, with a rope between two trees, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You have, okay. I can do that, but go to Alaska, go, go into the Arctic Find and you tree. will see that there are no trees for like 600 kilometers. And then the first trees you get, they're like, uh, maybe very old, but because of mm -hmm. the permafrost, they are, uh, like one or two meters tall. You cannot hang anything. You right. Know? So they make <laughs> that's a, the problem. They make so, bear boxes. It's a, it's a bear proof box that you can put your food in and then you put that away from your bike so that if a bear comes, they go to it, they can't get in and then they eventually they leave. But so my, yeah, I didn't know about this. What I ended up doing was that, uh, I was not eating anything clo uh, where I was camping. Yeah. So I was just uh, make this uh, this shake with the with the replacement uh, with the hundred percent food the replacement uh, food. Okay. Maybe like one hour before uh, before camping, and then cycle another like 20, 30 kilometers, and then find a place where I would camp, and I would just set up my tent, and then bring the bike two three hundred meters further down the road, mm -hmm. and just leave it there with the with the panniers that had the. Uh, food and everything that had some some sort of smell like toothpaste and things like that yeah that's the way to do it so you learned the hard way <laughs> i did yeah <laughs> so after that getting through canada into the usa pretty easy or yeah it was pretty easy i mean uh, once i got to vancouver then uh, things started to be easy because the the climate got uh, got a little bit warmer yeah and uh once I got to Portland, a friend, a very good friend of mine came from Ireland and we did Portland to San Francisco together. We didn't oh, nice. do the, the coast, but we went, um, we went into, into more inland yeah. and we went to, we followed the Clackamouse river, if I'm not mistaken. And then we did a pass. We went down to Bend. 
uh, Chico. Uh, it was nice because he had some relatives around along this route, and uh, we stopped and visited them, and it was pretty nice. And then we got to San Francisco, and then from San Francisco, I followed the the coast uh, to to LA. Yeah, and uh, and it was really nice because then I started to meet other people cycling, and uh, we would camp most of the days together, more or less the same people, and um, and so I learned a lot. For me, it was uh, was was a, was a learning experience to see how other people manage their campsite, what they do, the type of gear right. they had, and you know. And what was your experience going through South America? South America has been good. Uh, I crossed into Latin America in uh, in San Diego, and uh, and I did Baja California, and then I followed the coast uh, of Mexico, the the Pacific coast for for the most part, and I went up into the mountains in Chiapas. Then I zigzagged like an idiot in uh, in Central America to see both sides of uh, the Caribbean side and uh, and and the Pacific okay. side. And then in uh, Latino, and then in uh, once I got to South America, I got into Colombia. I follow basically um, the west uh, side of uh, of uh, of the continent. So I did uh, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, uh, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina. I zigzag many times okay. before uh, between Chile and uh, and Argentina. Can I ask and you? The experience um, was amazing. About the. Yes. How much time did you take to do the Baja California? Uh, I was going very quickly. At that time, I was still with the mentality of the road racing uh, guy, trying okay. to go as fast as possible. And also, I wanted to catch up with the girl that I had, uh, the French girl that I met in uh, in uh, in British Columbia, mm-hmm. and um, Safia. And I think it take it took me like ten days from. Uh, from San Diego to La Paz, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. Uh, something like that. Because I crossed into into Mexico border in Tijuana on December 19th. And I think I arrived in La Paz. It was January 1st or 2nd. Really? That fast? Yes. So you were sticking to the, the um, roads that are taken care of and... Yeah, it was, it was uh, at that time I was on uh, with a bike touring, a classic bike touring setup, and I okay. was sticking always to paved road. Okay, gotcha. So I would now, now most people they do the Baja divide. It wasn't still a thing like four years ago. The the Baja divide, and uh, and had I known there was a Baja, it was basically put together afterwards. Yeah. I think a few months after the, oh, after okay. I went. That's right. Otherwise, I would have done the Baja divide. Yeah. I mean, uh, I really like Baja. I like the desert in Baja. It's it's unique and it's nice. And uh, and I really like Mexico. It's one of my favorite uh, countries to to travel through. What did you uh, What did you do to bypass the Darien Gap? I was very sad when I was there because I didn't find anyone that was willing to to cross the Darien Gap by bike with me. And uh, after a little bit of research, I kind of, it was too expensive for me to cross it by land because uh, you have to pay off so many people. Right. Um, so at the end, I I went to, to San Blas, uh, to the San Blas community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I crossed with the uh, dugout boats of the of the local community, 
uh, I found uh, a captain that took me till the last island uh, that they live uh, that the Kunayala community live that is Isla Caledonia mm-hmm. and then um, and then basically I found some other pe- people that took me to to Puerto Valdivia where you stamp out and from there I found some some other people that would take me to Carpurgana where you stamp into Colombia and then from Carpurgana there is a regular uh, power boats that take you either to Unico Clear or Turbo where then the roads uh, resume ah. um, but if uh, if anyone has a bit of money it's usually you do it with a uh, sailing boats from from some blast and it's a really nice experience because they take like a few days and they take you directly to cartagena and uh, they stop in these uh, beautiful um, desert islands you know like the, the postcards yeah. uh, with the with the white sand and the palm and and they do snorkeling and things like that. But as I said, my my trip was always very frugal. And, so how much did it cost you in the end was, to do uh, through the dugout boats? I think maybe $150 probably. Okay. I'm not sure because I don't remember, but it's something like that because it's, it's still expensive. It's not cheap. The cheapest way at the time was to fly from Panama City to Medellin. You could fly f- for uh, about a hundred dollars, including uh, the luggage and the bike. But I didn't want to fly. I, because I was still like with the idea that I was gonna cross the Darien Gap with my bike. Yeah. Um, also, it's uh, that forest is very intimidating, and uh, just spending a night there, it's uh, it, it's alive, and everything that is bad in the world. Uh, you find it there from right. animals and disease and uh, people and there is a military operation of panama and colombia and they shoot at each other still oh do and they really this paramilitary group yeah they do there is paramilitary group uh, there is the guerrilla there is uh, narcos there is uh, human traffickers uh, i mean there is people hiding because they are uh, criminal criminals and uh, it's basically a no man's land and they hide there when i was in isla caledonia there was a, a group of uh, a group of uh, basically they were smuggling cubans from uh, from colombia to to panama okay. and the guide got lost and they come back uh, the day that was isla caledonia they came back these people and they had like blood coming out of their uh, all their legs because some animals were uh, was i don't know chewing them or i don't know what what kind of animal was that but it was terrible to see is that isla isla caledonia is in colombia or it's in panama in panama it's the last uh inhabited uh is uh island of um of the san blas islands that uh, Ah, is basically 360 islands um but Isla Caledonia belonged to to Panama. Wow. Okay. And um, and the the expensive way you said the the fancy way on a yacht or something. How much does that cost? Do you have any ideas? At the time was about uh, I think five hundred dollars plus maybe fifty to a hundred dollars for uh, for the bike. Maybe now it's a little bit more expensive. Okay. Maybe a hundred dollars more or something like that. What was your favorite country in South America to cycle? Uh, I had great experiences everywhere. 
I'd say Colombia is very similar to, it's basically the Mexico of South America. Okay. So it's very cheap. The people are uh, friendly. Uh, street food is good and, uh, and it has a lot of variety because everywhere you go, the food changes a little bit. And, uh, and people are warm and there's lots of music and I really liked. But I had good time in everywhere. In, in Peru, I had the, the best time. I did my first talk and there was so many people and they were so very supportive. I've been on TV, on the radios, in oh, okay. several medias. Um, Bolivia has one of the, the best uh, natural landscapes that, uh, that I ever seen in my life. So it was a wonderful experience. And, and cycling through Salardio Uni felt like I was in a, in a different world, um, in a different planet. Yeah. It was, it was something else. That's and the salt similar to yeah? the north of... Uh, yes. And a similar landscape is, uh, is in uh, the north of Chile. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, the nature is... Uh, and it feels so pristine. And, um, yeah, Patagonia was, uh, again, beautiful experience. I mean, every country, it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful and, uh, and unique in, in its own ways. But if someone wants to do an easy, an easy tour, an, an easy little tour that has to pick one country, I'd say in South America, Colombia, it's, uh, it's okay. a nice start. And uh, if someone uh, wants to, is more interested into the nature instead of the culture, yeah. probably the, the, the south of Bolivia, north Argentina and northern Chile, it's, uh, it's where the nature is okay. more uh, striking in a way. And in Bolivia, you also have the, the, you have the Altiplano, but you can also get to the Amazon part. So it's so diverse, you know. Okay. Do you, and you speak Spanish, right? Did you speak Spanish before you went to, to South America? Or? No, I, I slowly p- picked it up uh, from Mexico to, to Patagonia. But it, yeah, I never studied or anything. But it, it's easier for, uh, for Italians, Italians because yeah. the, the language is very, very similar. It's so similar you get confused. And, uh, and now I think I'm pretty much fluent. Oh, cool. What about Africa? Tell us a bit about Africa, because you've just cycled across it. So after uh, getting to Patagonia, I flew to, to Cape Town, mm-hmm. and um, I sold my surly uh, in, in Chile to pay for uh, flight tickets to Cape Town. Oh, and then okay. the bike shop in Italy, where I bought the first bike, I reached out and I was like, can you guys help me to get some a new bike? Uh, through a sponsorship or things like that and they were like because I knew they buy you know they have direct contacts with several bike brands Mm -hmm. and uh, but instead they said okay well if you if you have no money we will uh, we will give you a new bike for free and they gave me they gave me a choice of two bikes and I picked one and uh, got to South Africa and I had a new setup now that was more um, was more fun for um for gravel roads and sandy roads. Yeah. So now my bike is a, is a, is a plus size, uh, tires. So I have 2.8 inches or okay. three inches tires and, uh, and it was pretty fun. And from there I started in, uh, in South Africa. It was, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and, um, I found, uh, 
lots of welcoming in uh, immediately in South Africa from the the Africans community. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful people. Uh, sometimes they are a bit racist, um, but um, I'm white, <laughs> so I was welcomed everywhere. And um, and then I I got into Namibia. It's very similar to to South Africa. And uh, and then at some point th- there is a there is sort of a gate in Namibia, and once you it's basically it's a road. There is like a a, a gate that uh, control. It's like a, a control for the foot and mouth disease. Okay. And once you you leave this gate and you go north, you enter real Africa, and uh, uh-huh. you see like uh, tribal communities and. Uh, tribal compounds and and from there africa the real africa starts and and it's been an adventure it's been uh definitely uh something that uh, gave me a better understanding of uh of of some things that are going on like in europe we have lots of immigrants coming from from africa yeah and uh and people don't really have a a good understanding of uh, of this uh, of how what is life in Africa and uh, and the way things are and uh, and also it makes me realize how different the culture uh, is from what what I'm used and sometimes was was uh, mind blowing and and very difficult to understand uh, many things sometimes and i remember even uh, a warm shower host that is a is a tanzanian guy and he lived abroad and and he also t- do, do the around the world tours what so country was this in he, he in has tanzania? a good understanding tanzania yeah, in tanzania, tanzania. Yeah. and and i remember having conversation with him and he's like you know you could be here like 30 years and still you won't understand you you have to stop uh, wondering why t- just accept that things are like this it's just a different cu- the, the the culture is so di- so radically different that you you will never understand and uh, but yeah it's uh, it's been uh, it's been a great experience it re- i think africa requires lots of energy and uh, when i got to 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 south africa i was a bit overwhelmed by many things and uh, and i i had low very low energy mm-hmm. and it was very difficult to, for me to get the momentum going and also when i was in namibia i had like some personal uh, problems like i lost someone that uh, was uh, was very instrumental for 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 my adventure because okay. it was someone i was relying on for uh, to talk and uh, and vent and also for logistic and things like that and um, also like a, a girl that I I had met in uh, in Peru and we started a, a relationship uh, broke up with me okay. and uh, and I started to break loads of gear so everything was happening all at once and I was really overwhelmed and and for a, for a while I thought maybe I should just give up Africa I'm not ready and um, but I I waited a few weeks um, I broke my 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 uh, brace on of my my fork snapped. I mean, I had several things that I had to to fix, and I waited a few weeks in a in a place in uh, in Namibia on the coast, uh, <coughs> Wolvis Bay. Mm-hmm. Rearranged a bit everything and uh, and started again. 
And, um, and I was glad that I stick with it because so many people told me, okay, come back for a few months and rest with your family. And, but I'm, I'm really happy I pushed through and, uh, and I got to Cairo without going home or, uh, or anything like that. It was, um, it was, it was personally also like, uh, uh, a chance of growth and, um, uh, and self-discovery in a way. I think I saw a picture you posted of a horrible welding job. <laughs> yes, that, that was that. That's in uh, that's in Turkey, though. Oh, that was in Turkey. Okay, <laughs> that was really that, recent, right? Yeah. Yes. So the the the, the front rack uh, snapped also when uh, in in the similar spot, but on on the other side, on the right hand side of the of the fork snapped when I was doing the at the end of the. The Congo Nile Trail. Uh, okay. It's a it's a trail that is is uh, becoming uh, popular in uh, in Rwanda, and I remember going to a welder there in uh, in Giseni. That is the is a town that border. It's basically the border between uh, DRC, the, the the Democratic Republic of Congo, yeah. and Rwanda. Okay. And and get, I got it welded there, and I post a picture and. Uh, and and many people reached out and said, you know, it looks bad. It's not gonna last till Cairo, but it's, it's, I'm in Turkey and it's still pretty good. Oh, but wow. then I went to to the to the welder in Turkey that is supposed to be much developed country and you know like European <laughs> standards, and it did an awful job and it only lasted like a few hours and then. I got to a, diff, a bigger cities and I found a, a better welder, but he, had, he he did an awful job. And and then I we put a nail to to do a reinforce and right. and weld it again, and hopefully it will last a, a little while. That's crazy. But uh, thumbs up for the welder in uh, in Rwanda that we didn't give him any credit, and uh, but he did a, a good job actually. Yeah. And uh, Rwanda is a, is an interesting country because it has like uh, it's the it's a small country, but it's the country in uh, in Africa where there is more uh, there is a there is a big um, uh, cycling uh, culture and community. Oh, and okay. every year they do a tour of Rwanda, uh, which is like. Uh, a stage race that it's it's a professional one and it's uh it's basically the most popular in africa and there is lots of uh western teams that goes there to compete oh wow uh, i'm talking about the big teams like sky and bmc and yeah things like that and when i was there it, it was the week that there was the tour of rwanda so it was pretty oh, that's cool yeah what uh? What is one? Well, I mean, it's hard to say for Africa. There's so many countries similar to the question with South America. But what was one really special country that you cycled through that you you absolutely would love to go back to again? I really enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed all the countries in uh, in Africa except uh, Ethiopia and uh, and um, Egypt. Mm-hmm. Ethiopia is very famous among uh, bike travelers for being uh, a hostile uh, country. In uh, in a way that um, 
Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Um, you, there are loads of especially young people. They throw you stones, and they might spit at you or they just throw some uh, some some twigs, some piece of wood in into your wheels really? uh, <clears throat> while you're uh, while you're cycling. So it's it's a bit of style, and um, and also sometimes also adults can uh, can mess with you, and and that can can create many problems. So you have to cycle with a helmet. I never cycle with a helmet. I wouldn't mm-hmm. recommend it. <clears throat> But I, I'm not used, but I, I bought a, a helmet, especially for Ethiopia, because if you get a stone thrown in your head from up a hill, it can make some, some damage. And I remember a few months ago, like I can't remember if it's a German guy or a Dutch guy had basically an open skull and he had to go to the hospital and they put like nine or 10 stitches in his head. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I, I also bought a, a taser only only for uh, for for Ethiopia and I when I was crossing the the villages I had the taser in my hand uh, on the on button and uh, everyone that was approaching that was um, looking very friendly I would just uh, threaten them with a uh, with a taser and uh, sometimes even kids uh, I know they are just kids but when you have like four or five seven ten twelve year olds that they surround your bike and they try to steal things off your bike it's and and throw you stones it's it's not fun even wow. if even if they are kids it's 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 and also like it's a country that is really tiring you cannot stop one minute only just to pee that you have you're surrounded by four or five people begging like there is no tomorrow oh wow and uh yeah, and you had some water bottles stolen. Was that Ethiopia? Your water bottles got stolen. That was in uh, that was in Uganda. Uganda. For some okay. reason, the kids in uh, in uh, in Rwanda and Uganda they are obsessed about water bottles. They always ask <laughs> you for water bottles, and uh, and a couple of times they they didn't really ask. They just took them, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. But Uganda and Rwanda they are very safe okay. uh, countries to, to go through. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I would, yeah, there's just not many problems there. So about Egypt? Egypt was, um, there are two things I don't like about Egypt. One thing is, 
I'm sorry to say for the Egyptian people, but uh, the rip of uh, culture there is uh, <laughs> it's pretty prevalent. So it's you have to be very careful. Like you cannot to get to a place like a cafeteria and just grab a Coke from the fridge. It's better you ask first how much it costs. Otherwise, once you open it and you drank it, the price goes up like ten folds or twenty folds. Oh wow! It's, it's really crazy. And uh, every other person is trying to rip you off. And uh, and the other problem of the of Egypt is the police. It's it's a bunch of unprofessional babies, and they're borderline harassing. And uh, I know that they are supposed to be there to to make sure that you're safe, mm-hmm. but they are really really harassing. And um, and I had so many problems. They took away my passport. They locked me up on a van for for a few hours uh, they t- I made one day I, they, they took me they took me back like 20 120 kilometers from the place I started I, I know in each in the day I arrived in Cairo it's 13 months I'm crossing the continent let me celebrate arriving in Cairo no? right I had a tank and a police van following me and once I crossed the Nile for the last time I wanted to take some picture make a, a live uh, streaming yeah. on, uh, on on Instagram and they didn't allow me and uh, one policeman uh, grab, tried to grab me and push me out of the bike and I was like if you touch me again I'll, fu- I'll punch your face you know and I was like and if you don't understand uh, English and I, I give him the middle finger this is the international language oh, wow. uh, they really they really pushed me to, to the limit you know and so I couldn't take it anymore and that's why once I got to Cairo, I decided to fly to, to Istanbul. There was many reasons why I, I decided not to continue in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- one of the main reasons was that, uh, that they, I couldn't take uh, cycling again with the, with the Egyptian police. One day they made me cycle 242 kilometers because they wouldn't let me stop. Okay, so crazy. I was going to ask you why you cycled 242 kilometers in a day, because that's a really, really long ride. Like- because they wouldn't let me camp and uh, the way the police work in Egypt is uh, they don't they basically don't care about you they care that nothing happens to you in their territory so for the 30 40 kilometers they don't want anything to happen so they don't want you to camp they barely don't want you to stop in a restaurant to eat so they want you to take you as quick as possible to the next police checkpoint and then they just turn their car around and they go they don't even advise the next police checkpoint that you're coming so when you're there then it's a big problem because they don't know what to do they have to arrange a, a new vehicle to escort you so it's it's, it's a big mess uh, and uh, this one day nobody wanted me to to camp or let me stop and i kept going until uh, i got to a checkpoint that was like midnight and uh, and i said who's in charge here i'm not gonna cycle any longer i'm not going to an hotel i'm gonna put my camp my tent here and luckily there was a guy that spoke english and he said look let me help you i'll make a few phone calls and then he said, that's okay, now you, you can put your tent. And, uh, and he told me, what time do you want to wake up in the morning that I'll have a car uh, arranged for you? And I was like, I'll, I'll get up at 4 a.m. and by 5 I'll be ready to, to hit the road. Wow. And that was the last day that I would have got to Cairo. Oh, that was just before, just before you got to Cairo, yeah? Yeah. 
it was 242 days and then the day after I did 170, 180 kilometers. Oh, wow. Just to get out of that country, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that, so I, I then when from Cairo, I flew to, to Istanbul because first of all, I was didn't want to problem with the police anymore. Mm-hmm. Second of all, in, I had to cross Sinai and uh, a few days before they blew up a, a police checkpoint and 14 people was killed. So wow. I was a bit of, I don't know if I want to do Sinai. And uh, third, you have to cross Jordan and I was looking forward to, to get to Petra by bike. But then I was told uh, there as well, it's uh, the rip of mentality is really prevalent. And fourth reason was that I would have had to get to Israel and don't put anything on the social media or anything because then if I want to get a visa to go to Iran yeah. and they see and they find out that you were in Israel, you can't. So, and then I would have had to drag myself to Israel Marinas to find a, to hitch a ride with a, to hitch a, a boat ride to to Cyprus and then from Cyprus to, to Turkey and I got seasick a lot so oh. I was like yeah, no, you know what I just I signed up for cycle around the world but if I have to put together all these problems you know I just fly, fly to Istanbul yeah because once you once you get to Jordan all the countries around it are other than Iran are kind of problem countries right now you don't really want to be going through Iraq necessarily or Syria or I don't know what's yeah I, I mean, Syria, it's a suicide at the moment mm-hmm. uh, to cross. And then uh, you could chance it in Iraq. But the uh, situation can be a bit sketchy. So it can, maybe one week it can be okay to cycle through. And uh, the following week it's it's a suicide, you know. it's So I was like, no, just fly to, to Istanbul. And, uh, and I knew that the next continent would have been... Uh, Europe because I need some downtime to to work on some side projects and also like uh, I want to spend some time with my family my my parents are getting a bit older and it's not fair for for them to be away like six seven years and and yeah so I want to spend some time with my family before maybe it's too late you know so now you're heading towards Bulgaria and then through Europe back towards Italy I haven't decided my route now. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I'm heading towards Asia. So from Istanbul, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm heading in the, the wrong direction. But I did a really nice uh, trail here that got me into the kind of middle of, uh, of the Turkey. Sufi trail, right? And then, yeah, the Sufi trail. And then I'll, I'll head to from here to Cappadocia. And then from there, going south to the, to the, uh, to the Mediterranean coast. And basically come back up and then I'll either decide if I go to Greece or Bulgaria, uh, Romania. I will decide, to be honest, based okay. on, on climate and uh, and just toss a coin when I'm there. <laughs> okay. I don't plan much, to be honest. I was originally going to ask you about the bikes. So you sold the Surly. Was it a long haul trucker? Or? It was a disc trucker. A yeah. disc trucker, yeah. Same, same model. Yeah. yeah, same model, but with uh, disc brakes. And now you have a bike that's kind of business up front, party in the back. Yeah, it's a semi semi bikepacking setup. Okay. With uh, the the bike is uh it's a twenty seven point five 
inches with okay. plus size uh, tires. So it's and so basically, and I can either fit uh, the 27.5 plus tires, or uh, I can also put twen- uh, standard 29ers wheels. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's it's basically the same size, and I have two uh, back panniers fitted in the front. I have um, on top. I have a, a big bag that it looks huge, but it doesn't hold much. But it was the only bag that I, I could find when I, when I was getting to South Africa, and uh, I can't wait to to change it. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I where I store like all my cooking equipment and food and and things like that. And then in between the handlebar and that one, I have uh, another huge dry bag that it looks huge but there is nothing inside there is basically the the ground sheet of my tent mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, a closed cell uh, sleeping mat okay so that there is nothing everybody thinks it's full of things but yeah there is nothing inside it's just and i i don't like i have the, the thermarest uh, z uh, z light mm-hmm. um and and it, it's pretty bulky, and I don't. Want, and I see people just put it on on their bike like that, but I don't want it to get wet and uh, and dusty. So I just put it in this big dry bag, okay. and it's there basically. And then I have a frame bag where I uh, I put um, I have two spare tubes and uh, you know like my ba- uh, uh, pump and. Mm. Uh, tubeless repair kit and I have wet wipes, alcohol to clean myself mm-hmm. and things like that that I wanna reach out pretty quickly. And then in the in the saddle bag I keep my rain gear and my tent. Okay, perfect. Alright, is exactly what I was gonna ask you is like what you carry, what you keep. Yeah. And in the front panniers on the front panniers, on on one pannier I have everything that I need for the night. And my first aid kit. So I have like some clothes. Uh, I have like uh, my silk liner. I have um, a down jacket. I have uh, a sleeping bag, mm-hmm. my Kindle, things like that. Okay. And on the other pannier, I think I keep like a, a small laptop and some spare parts and uh, cables, electronics, things like that. Where do you keep uh, your food and yeah. uh, cooking stuff? It's in the big bag that is on the in, on, top oh, on top of the front truck. Okay, gotcha. I saw you use the Skyroam. Is that sponsored or? Yes, that's a, a sponsorship. Um, basically, it's one of, I when I was putting together the gear for for my trip, I saw there was an article on uh, one Italian newspaper talking about this device. And I reach out uh, to Skyrom, they are in San Francisco, and I ask if they would sponsor me. And uh, at that time, I had like 10 followers on my on my Instagram. Right. So I don't know why, but they gave me they gave me a free device, a free Skyrom, and a bunch of uh, daily passes, maybe like 20 daily passes. And I still have the same Skyrom. And when I was getting to Africa, they had a new model that is much faster. It's a okay. 4G one. And they sent me one, but it, it's still in Italy. I still have to pick it up. I, I didn't have any chances to 
to get any supplies from uh, from my home country mm-hmm. so it's still there but uh, kudos to them they 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 reached out and well they i reached out and they gave me they gave me the free product and, and a bunch of daily passes and oh, uh, nice. sometimes it's sometimes it's handy because uh, Either the SIM card doesn't work, or you buy a SIM card and uh, it expires, or things. Yeah. Like that. So that's very <laughs> handy because you just turn it on and and it works in a, pretty much every country. So, so you just use they it don't when you absolutely need to. You don't use it all the time, just on those occasions. Where... No, I don't use it all the time because uh, uh, they don't give me unlimited daily passes, and uh, and if I had to buy the daily passes, are they're pretty expensive. Okay, uh, they're like well. Expensive for my budget, you know, it's all relative, but they're like eight dollars, I think, for unlimited 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And then now that you can also buy one or two gigabytes, uh, that you can use in several countries, but I don't know how much it is. It is actually how, how far do you usually ride on a daily basis? When I look at, uh, let's say, I I look at a route and uh, I'm doing a trail or or I need to arrange a host in the next city. I usually consider about a hundred kilometers. So let's say I need to get to from here to Istanbul yeah. and I want to arrange a host there. I might consider if it's 800 kilometers, let's say I will get there in eight days. Okay. And then sometimes I do more, sometimes I do less. Uh, but I, if I do, if I do at least a hundred kilometers, I, f- I feel like I did my job for the day. And sometimes now if I, if I cycle for, for a while and I didn't take any breaks, then I get a bit more fit and I can easily do 120, 140 kilometers, but I like to, to travel slow. It's, it gives me more chances to, to stop and talk to people and, yeah. and be open <clears throat> to, to learn the, the local culture, especially in, uh, in countries that are very, that the, the, the traveling culture is, uh, is pretty prevalent or, or in countries where they, they really want to support people traveling through like Muslim countries. It could be like Sudan or Turkey. Uh, it happens a lot that you, you go through like, uh, a little village and people are eating outside their home and and they just invite you to stop for either a coffee really? or a tea or just a full meal and uh, and if you're in a hurry that oh i have to get to this place by by this time or by this day then you're not gonna stop or you you're more in a rush and mm-hmm. i don't i don't like that because i think uh, traveling and uh, and learning the and and uh, absorb as much as possible of the the culture that you go through is is a uh, is the experience that you do in the little unknown places and unknown villages because if you go to a to b a famous place and it could be let's say in turkey it could be like uh, istanbul and cappadocia yeah. and uh, antalya or izmir these places everybody goes to these places all the backpackers go to these mm-hmm. places but the real Turkey is not Istanbul, is not Cappadocia, yeah. is not Antalya, is not Izmir. It's what is in between these places. Yeah. So. And when you go to the touristy yeah, places, you, to... you become a dollar sign and you're not actually a person anymore. You're just people are looking at you as like, oh, yeah, yeah. tourists, get money, you know? So. It's usually, they are usually a ripoff. And, and I stop like going to, to see most of the tourist places. For me, it's just a chance maybe to find a host because 
in these places maybe that there are more hosts on on warm showers sure. or couch surfing but sometimes i i don't even check out the, the the tourist attraction or you know or the museum or things like that for me it's it's not important it's uh it's not something that i value a lot and uh you know but this is my way of traveling for for That's other right. people is it's uh it's different for this is my way of traveling and and I like it this way. Are you using an iPhone again after Sudan? Yes, it's still the same iPhone. <laughs> it exploded in Sudan, but uh, we were able to to fix it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, Sudan, Sudan, Sudan was insane. Uh, first of videos. all, it's a beautiful yeah. country with beautiful people, and they are the most hospitable, honest people that you and most welcoming people you you will find in Africa and probably around the world. Mm-hmm. But the, the the temperatures in uh, in May they were insane and and they exceeded uh, fifty degrees Celsius. That I'm not really sure how much it is in in Fahrenheit, but I'm sure it's one hundred and twenty, yeah. thirty, forty. I don't know. It should be it's about it should be about one hundred thirty. Fifty degrees would be probably around one hundred thirty degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a lot. It's like being in an oven, and I could. I couldn't really phantom what was 50 degrees until I experienced it. Mm-hmm. And you know, like 40s, it's a lot. And you might experience it in Europe when it's unusual. And 45, you know, I can manage and I mm-hmm. experienced it several times, even in, in Central America. But you know, those like five, six degrees more. <laughs> They make a huge difference, yeah. and it was insane. And and at and at usually didn't cycle between eleven and four p.m., eleven a.m. and mm-hmm. four p.m. But this one day I was getting, I was trying to get to a city as early as possible because okay. I was gonna take a half a day off, and uh, and so I and it took, because of the wind it took me a little longer than expected. And uh, and I cycled in uh, the noon hours, and I got there. It was two p.m. And uh, yeah, I found out my my phone had exploded Shit. before getting there. The battery popped out the display, and it wasn't it wasn't working. And and then it took me like a day to find a new battery and find a guy. But the guy never uh, never opened. Like he was fixing phones, but he never opened an iPhone, and he wasn't fully sure the cable of the the, the touch um, the touch id bottom and and i was like can you just check on on youtube some tutorials you should be able to do it and it took like an hour to load the video <laughs> and then we watched it and but eventually he he was able to 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 replace the battery and put it and then it, everything worked the touch id worked and Oh, wow. And I'm still rocking the same uh, the same uh, phone, and it's a phone that someone uh, like a a girl gave me okay. uh, when I was in uh, in Santiago in Chile because my phone uh, my previous phone was a was a very old uh, BlackBerry and it stopped working, and at that at that stage uh, even WhatsApp wasn't working on on the BlackBerry and. Yeah. So, so what kind of iPhone is it? iPhone six, seven? It's a five, five, uh, five C or five okay. I had yeah, an iPhone five, five in Malaysia about a year and a half ago, and same thing. the The battery expanded, and it was completely falling apart. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hopefully it will last a little longer and then I will start to do some talks around Europe and hopefully someone will will give me an old iPhone that they have uh, sitting around. I will probably stick to iPhone because now I, I paid a bunch of apps and, and it just works. Yeah, you know. and cloud storage and all those things. And, um, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I've been to Iran and in a desert in Iran it was around 48 degrees and that's pretty freaking hot. So... I imagine 50 yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar, you know. It's uh, and it's uh, I, uh, the the most mind blowing thing was that sometimes I would stop at 11 a.m. and get to a cafeteria and bring the bike inside, so in the shade, you know, in a shade because you're mm-hmm. in a room. There's no sun because uh, there's no windows, and and at four o'clock when I would just go and grab the bike to go. To go back out, I would touch the bike, and it was still like very, very hot. Like you know, yeah. I would touch the 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 frame bag that is black, or the panniers, or uh, or even like the handlebar. I have some some ergo grip that are kind of blackish, and I would touch them, and there's it's still hot. Like four or five hours yeah. later, that they are in the shade. It's, it's mind blowing. So let's uh, let's talk a bit about um we're towards the end now but let's talk a bit about money you said about two years into your trip is when you, yeah. you became kind of financially independent on the tour you didn't how what did you mean and yeah. how are you how do you finance things yeah i mostly have like two ways of um of um raising some funds uh, towards my adventure mm-hmm. and uh, I, ha- I usually travel with a set of printed postcards that they have like two three pictures of my trip in the front and at the back there is a there is a quote of an adventurer uh, the founder of uh, patagonia actually okay that um say if if i'm not mistaken because i don't have the postcards with me but i think it says uh, adventure is best defined as a as a journey or a trip from uh, from which you don't come don't come back uh, from which you you may not come back alive and certainly not the, the same person uh, it's okay. something <clears throat> along those lines and i think it's a it's a nice message to summarize uh, grand adventure or uh, mm-hmm. long distance traveling i think it's 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 really frame the spirit of the adventure that uh, that I'm doing, and it ha- also has all my contacts, uh, emails and blog and social media contacts, Instagram and Facebook, so people can grab one of those postcards and um, and also follow my adventure. And usually, I sell them. In um, I started in Latin America, and we would get to these little villages or even big uh, big cities and just go to the to the plaza to the square yeah. and just <clears throat> offering to people uh, without any fixed price a, a collaboration price okay. we we'll call it in in spanish uh, and um, and people were just uh, donating whatever they they felt and uh, and then i started to sell it to to tourists that I would, uh, you know, just go outside a park or um, a tourist attraction and just uh, just offering it to people. Yeah. And uh, in Latin America, it would uh, work very well because uh, there is a there is a good uh, traveling culture, so they know what you're doing. You you don't really need to explain a lot. So we would go to to a bakery and just offer. Uh, 
um, a, a postcard in exchange of a, of a, of a bag of, uh, of bread or pastry or go oh, to okay. a restaurant and, and get a meal in exchange of a, oh, that's cool. uh, a postcard. Obviously, they, they, they are very cheap restaurants and not a la carte. And, um, and you would get whatever was given to you, like some rice, some chicken, a bit of salad, and, and it was good. But it's, I really like this, uh, this very frugal way of traveling because it puts me in touch with, uh, with loads of people mm-hmm. and reaching out for local support. It's a, it's a humble gesture, but you learn a lot about the, 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 local, uh, the local culture sometimes, it's, you know, I, I mostly camp, so sometimes I would just get to a farm and ask if I could camp. Yeah. And, you know, usually they, they, you have an exchange, you have a dialogue going, so you learn a lot about the, the local place and, and they, tell, they, give you, they give you lots of information. But also, most of the time, they invite you in their home for either dinner or breakfast or both. So you really learn the, the local the local culture. Mm-hmm. And if you had lots of money, you would just go to the, the expensive hotel or an hotel and you would just spend the night alone, get up alone and and have breakfast alone and kept going. So I don't I don't I think not having a huge budget is actually a blessing when you're doing a, a long journey okay. like this. And this is one set of postcards and uh, the other and, and then when I'm in a, when I stay in a place for a, for a long time, well, for a week or ten days, and I'm in a city, I usually draw some uh, very horrible po- uh, postcards with uh, with watercolors. Okay. It's usually the flag of the country where I am, and uh, I just take some picture of those postcards that I drew and I put them on social media on Instagram and Facebook and usually people send me a donation again there's no fixed price on 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 those postcards mm-hmm. and people might send 10 dollars and or 20 dollars or 20 euros 50 dollars and uh, basically they contribute to the the adventure That's cool. and in exchange they after a few weeks they receive a handmade postcards with a personalized note at the back and uh, and an exotic postcards of the country where I where I am, you know, and um, so these two ways, um, it's the, the two ways that I find uh, that works for me uh, to generate some sorts of income mm-hmm. that goes towards the expense of um, of this journey. Most of the money I spend, it's usually goes to gear. Uh, because gear breaks when you use it, right. and um, and gear is expensive as well, especially if you have to ship it in uh, over overseas or in in some countries, and you have to, yeah, it's, it gets expensive. And um, for the most part, I I'm not very fancy. I I have two t-shirts, two pair of trousers, and. And I usually don't replace them unless they have like loads of holes okay. that are not repairable. Uh, I use the same shoes. I, I throw them away when uh, when I got to Istanbul. And uh, yeah, I use them more than three years and I repair oh, wow. them several times. And they were falling apart, especially after the dryness of the desert and uh, of Sudan and Egypt. It was about time, but I, I use them a lot. Yeah, I, I try also like food, if I, you know, um, 
even in Africa, food uh, in in cheap restaurants is not expensive. But I would go for this cheaper option. Right. Obviously, meat is a little bit more expensive, but rice and beans are are cheap and and they give you all the nutrients you need. And now we just, you know, just go for rice and beans. And so do you? I can eat the same stuff for a month. It's it doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. really bother me. So do you tend to eat mostly a vegetarian diet just because it's cheaper? Yes. Yeah, and uh, and also I find that soft drinks it's uh, it's a cheap way to to get some calories, so I I I shouldn't, but I drink soft a lot of soft drinks, oh, okay. especially in the countries where uh, they are cheap. Yeah. I I know I nobody should do it, but I could you know I can also like drink two three liters of like soft drinks uh, every day. If it's cheap. <laughs> and how much do you spend on the dentist? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> um, so uh, what's your what's your budget? What do you feel like you spend on a daily basis? Just because I like to get an idea of what people, not counting gear and the occasional flight, but just your yeah. day-to-day costs. What does it run you? To be honest, I never made a calculation. Okay. But if I had to make a guess... It's uh, it's between two and four dollars, okay. probably less. Yeah. I don't know because I've seen. Uh, I think you might be the, the the cheapest one yet. Um, I'd say I've had people from you know two guys who are traveling on a budget of nine euros total for the two of them for food and shelter, and then some people it's twenty five euros a day, fifty euros a day. You know, so because I travel without money, without savings, for me it's the money is. It's not a problem. I mean, in a way that because uh, I travel so cheaply that I I need very little money. Mm-hmm. And for example, I've been uh, over a month in uh, in Istanbul. I never had to pay for accommodation, and uh, most day I I'm really lucky. I go through these little villages, and um, most day I get uh, lots of food given to me for free and uh, either breakfast or dinner or lunch or a combination of of all the three and uh, it's just loads of uh, it's it's loads of fruit everywhere so i stop and i do long uh, fruit breaks where i just there is an apricot tree and i stay there half an hour and i just eat loads of <laughs> loads of fruit and um yeah, but for example, here people are very, very generous with the food. When I was in Egypt, I would just uh, eat loads of, um, drink loads of uh, soft drinks that are very cheap, and then just find some some cheap like rice and beans and things like that. Um, it was pretty cheap as well, and then uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah. If I if I could get supplies of um, of food replacement, I would reach out to a to a food replacement company. Unfortunately, one hundred percent food is being discontinued. But I would I would uh, yeah just reach out to some some of those companies and just get like a bunch of kilos of this stuff delivered and just just if I was going through an expensive country that. I, you know, I would know that I couldn't get any cheap food. I would just rely on things like that or just cook my own food. Even in Europe, I think you can buy a, a half a kilo of pasta for like 
one euro probably and uh, you can cook half a kilo for one day you can have like two meals uh, dinner and morning or and just uh, you don't even need sauce I would just in in Patagonia I did that a lot a lot of time just throw some salt some a little bit of pepper and some olive oil so mm-hmm. it's very cheap it's very quick and for me it's I'm not really fancy uh, I like to eat well but when I'm traveling I I just need some calories and yeah I just and the cheapest energy. way to do it and that's it. And uh, I prefer pasta. Some people do it rice. It's even it's even cheaper. But I don't have the patience to cook rice. It takes a long time. I prefer pasta or quinoa or things like that. You know, things that cooks very quickly. And also, like I would like, I would you know, I come from Latin America and I did Africa. And now I'm really curious to see how I'm received in in Europe with. Uh, with the postcards, if I can sell them, mm. if I can exchange them for food. I just, I'm really curious. Um, yeah. In Europe, there are lots of warm shower hosts and couch surfing hosts. So I'd say most of them, they will also give you some food or things like that. So mm. it's it's going to be a bit easier. But I would like to see how the postcard things uh, works in Europe on the road. I always find it as an interesting, you know, balance because bike tours and, you know, people are trying to do long tours and at some point money does run out. And, and yet there's this reliance on the generosity of strangers. I did wonder at the beginning, like, am I doing the right thing? Is, am, I, am, I, am I taking advantage of the society? And, but I, I had some conversation with smarter people that could articulate <laughs> <Okay>. more <laughs> about this concept. But basically the, the, the underlying idea was like, don't worry about it. It's uh, people support your trip because they feel good about uh, themselves supporting you so and and there are uh, people supporting my trip and they do it for for all sorts of reason and um but i also provide some sort of value i know it's bullshit but i've i've there are several people that i know that they follow my instagram stories Mm -hmm. or my posts on either instagram the pictures or my videos online and they get some entertainment out of it and uh, and some people I had a friend that uh, you know when I started my trip and I was in Alaska she she's a, she's a, a, the partner of a, of a good friend of mine and uh, and I was really struggling and I was voicing my struggle because I had hypothermia, I had these problems with right. the bears and, and I was about to, and I was saying, I don't know what to do and I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if I'm cut out for, for this long adventure. And she reached out to me and she said, look, I can relate to your struggle because I also need to find a new place. Uh, where to live I know you have to find a new a new a new home every night where to place your tent but also I'm, I'm going through this uh this uh breakup from from your friend and yeah. and I have this struggle and we have a baby and 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 I can relate your struggle and uh, and also I really enjoy to to follow your adventure because it, it gives me like a, it's this moment of the day that you know it's it's a light 
uh, time of the day that I check out where you are and what you're doing. Oh, and on a similar land, I have a, a, a very good friend of mine that uh, he told me, like, I... I watch your stats every day and I go and I look on the on the map where you are. I have a satellite tracker so people can follow where I am. And uh, and I look at your uh, pictures and, and those are the 10 minutes of the day that I don't think about anything. And, you know, I'm, I'm clinically depressed and, and I have this problem and that problem. And, and, and this is someone that I, for, uh, has a very good job and he works in a, in a very good uh, known company and okay. and he's a successful person but still is clinically depressed and he gets like five minutes out of uh, fall of entertainment out of uh, following me and now i see also i'm trying to do more vlogs and more uh, more people uh, more uh, videos on on youtube and there are more people following uh, mm -hmm. just for the entertainment of um, of uh, of watching 10 15 20 minutes video and at some point uh, i want to develop a little bit more my photography and my videography skills and then probably i will ask people if uh if they want to just chip in like a few a few dollars a few euros a month uh just to keep the the cost of the production and yeah. you know and it's uh, it's the same like i and i had like a a bike traveler uh, that we shared the road a few weeks in in Mexico. She's a German. Uh, she's a German uh, lady. She went home uh, much much earlier than me. And when uh, I was still on the road after uh, like a year and a half that we met, and and I was still in South America, and she said, "How can you do it? Did you not reach? Did you not wait, run out of money?" And and I told her what I was doing with the postcard that I was exchanged them. Mm -hmm for food and, 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 and I was selling them in the little villages and things like that. And she said, are you not ashamed? Uh, you're in the prime years of your, uh, of your life or of your career. You could be much more productive in Europe and, and do things, uh, productive things for the society. And you're, she basically, she didn't use the word parasite, but she was basically describing like you're a parasite right. and i taught it for a moment and uh, and she has a brother this he's a professional sailor and and he got the sponsorship from uh, from oakley's and from i think adidas and this brand okay. and i was thinking you know at the end of the day it's the same i'm i'm providing some entertainment to yeah. people and uh and it's not that I demand, I just ask. And if someone wants to chip in and wants to buy uh, postcards, it's okay. If they don't want to buy, it's okay as well. It's not, yeah. it's not that I'm forcing it <clears throat> onto people, you know. And, uh, and I'm a sport, like, I, I'm almost like an athlete. It's just that I don't have TV. And, but I do the same stuff that a prof professional athlete do. And these companies, this is a big corporation that makes lots of monies in, in developing country, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, you know, places like, uh, Argentina or Bolivia or Chile, you know, uh, the people there, they, 
these big corporations they make lots of money out of the of these people and uh, why why should be different for me i don't have tv and i don't make a big tournament but for the people that they found entertaining what i do mm-hmm. they can give me a meal i can give them a postcard and uh, and many of these people start to follow me on social media and they send me messages i have uh, I keep getting messages from uh, from farmers from Colombia that oh, wow. uh, gave me a place to stay for the night, and I camped outside their home and we shared uh, we shared a, a very humble meal, or um, you know, um, or a coffee or things like that. And and I'm still in touch, and they reach reach out to me, and lots of African people. It's the same. People that uh, they are in a in a very rural compound in Africa, but they might have access to a mobile phone, yeah. and they send me a message through 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 WhatsApp or, or or Messenger, and and I'm in contact with these people, and uh, and so even uh, for the followers on Instagram, I. I, I do think I, in a way, I provide uh, content and I provide entertainment, and I don't really feel ashamed to say if someone thinks I provide something of value and they want to buy a postcard and send me ten dollars or buy me a meal or or make a donation when uh, when I break some gear so that I can replace it. I I, I don't I don't really feel like a parasite. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> at least I think you answered that really well. You know, I think um, part of it, too, is living vicariously through other people's adventures. Not everybody has the opportunity where they can cycle around the world, different commitments, different things. And, you know, me doing this podcast is also a way I, I live through other bike tours. I, I meet them. I talk to them. I interview them yeah. and, and I take something from that and I don't have the ability to, to go on a two-year, four-year bike tour. Obviously, I'm not saying <laughs> that everybody should uh, travel the world on a bike and stop uh, their career and stop being a doctor or do something for... But, you know, like, I found I found my calling through cycling around the world with a bike and this is what makes me feel alive. It mm-hmm. makes me feel happy. I'm passionate, and but I'm not saying everybody has to do it. And as you said, some people find what I do entertaining and they want to help out, but also because they cannot do it themselves. So mm-hmm. some people live the adventure vicariously through me. Yeah. And that's why they want to help financially or otherwise because they might have some commitments, they might have uh, a family that they need to provide, they might have a sick child or a sick parent to look after. And and this is actually real cases because, you know, it's something that people told me, like, I'm leaving the trip because I cannot do it myself. Yeah. And, uh, and in that case, I, to be honest, I don't feel ashamed because... Uh, you know, they they live the trip through me. They live everything that all my adventure, fortune or misfortune, vicariously through me. Yeah. So if they feel like uh, sending me five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, fifty dollars, it's uh, I accept it and I'm humbled. I don't demand anything from anyone, but I don't feel ashamed to receive uh, things, uh, either food or uh, or monetary donation 
no. Well said. I like to to take uh, some pictures uh, and I like to do, to keep entertain people uh, online and write a, a few stories. And I would like to be a better storyteller and mm-hmm. get better at videos. And I think I will get there. But yeah, as you said, everybody has their own ways. And some other people do travel by bike for years and they might stop in a place and work, make uh, some money and keep going. Sure. Some other people, uh, you know, I met a, a couple from uh, from Spain. They're very good at putting together videos and storytelling. So they're very entertaining, the videos they make. And they make money uh, because people donate. They have like um, every every video they publish on, on YouTube, they make a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. So in a in a year in a month, I think they make five five six hundred dollars or a little bit more, mm-hmm. and uh, and they feel comfortable the way. And they told me like this this is the way we feel comfortable. We would feel uncomfortable to exchange postcards or to to sell postcards or things like that. So I think different people they find a different yeah. way to to travel. I have some friends from. Uh, a friend from Mexico and and his girlfriend from Spain. They were recycling uh, used um, uh, bike tires, and they would make uh, some belts, and uh, and they were beautiful, and they were selling oh, wow. them a lot in Colombia, especially because the farmers <clears throat> they have to replace uh, their belts very very often because they're made in leather and it's a very humid uh, climate ah, and sometimes sense. they get wet in in the field but they really like the the fact that uh, the, these belts were were made with rubber and they would last a long time and then i have another um, another uh, like uh, friends a couple from argentina they, they they develop a craft and they would make like uh, bracelets and uh, and necklaces and uh, you know jewelry with uh, and they develop this craft and they would just go in the plaza and sell these things. Mm-hmm. So different people find it different way, and I don't think there is a right way or a wrong way. Um, it's just whatever works and uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we saw I've seen lots of backpackers too, you know, in tropical islands selling bracelets they make or collecting shells and making things. You know, it's the same thing. It's just. Yeah, yeah. You see, in the backpacking community, uh, it's uh, they've been done it. They've done it for for years and years, and you see them uh, a lot. Um, also, the idea of uh, drawing uh, postcards with watercolors was given to me by a by a Canadian guy that oh. uh, he traveled. Uh, he traveled a lot. He traveled from Canada to to almost Patagonia. He got to Chile, and then in the no- the north in the north of Argentina, he decided to go home. And now he's in Bali. But he was uh, he was an artist. He's an artist, and uh, and he was making loads of these postcards. And they are his postcards are beautiful because he's yeah. an artist. He would also get to an hostel and just paint mur- murales or oh, okay, like um, trade his services. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he'd, he'd spend lots of time in hostels. I don't like uh, hostels, um, for example, so I don't like to stay in a hostel. I'd rather uh, camp or just stay with in someone's home. Um, but yeah, different people, different way of traveling and uh, and to support the travel through, through art, craft, 
photography, videography. There are so many people. If you go in Latin America, you see lots of backpackers and some cyclists as well that they stop at a crossroad and they do juggling. Davide, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, the best way is to follow me on Instagram mm -hmm. at uh, Davide Travelli. Travelli is my it's my real last name. It's spelled like David with one E at the end. T-R-A-V-E-L-L-I. And, uh, and reach, out, uh, reach out to me from there. And they can buy some postcards or just make a plain donation, buy me a coffee. And um, Facebook has the same name. Uh, I don't have a, a page. I have my personal account and people can just follow me there. And I'm developing my a little bit more my, my YouTube channel. Again, it's the same name. They can find me, Davide Travelli, on, uh, on YouTube. And I'm trying to publish a new vlog or a new video every Sunday, uh, oh, cool. every Sunday morning. And that's the best way to get in touch with me. And my blog is Alaska number two patagonia.com i'm stuck with this uh, with this uh, with yeah. this blog name because the original project as we discussed before was just to cross the americans mm -hmm. awesome i will uh, i will put links in my website as well uh for the blog post i'll write about this um so people can access it there davide really great to meet you I'll let you get on with your day thanks so much thank you thank you very much for uh, for having me And uh, I would just want to encourage everybody that is on uh, that is thinking about starting a, a, a bike travel or not, just go for it. Like I went to a, I got to Alaska without any experience of bike traveling whatsoever, and I never pitched a tent in my life. And if I made it, that I have that I'm an average guy with no skills whatsoever, everybody can do it. And it's you will really feel free yeah bike traveling is the ultimate freedom so ciao everybody and thanks for listening and thanks for following me ciao ciao davide thank you in next week's episode i'll be meeting sam rice a young brit that has embarked on a bike tour with no specific goal in mind he shares really interesting stories and talks about his three months so far on the bike long days, short days, best places, and even individual stories and accounts about really wondrous occasions. He also shares some deeper, sadder stories about his upbringing and his, his thirst to succeed and what this did to him mentally and physically and how he changed his life around. We spend quite a bit of time talking about spirituality. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's show and next week, Look forward to Adventures by Cycle with Sam Rice. Thank you and keep on pedaling.